Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, editor of Libertarianism.org and a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Today on Free Thoughts, we're joined by our colleague Matthew Feeney, a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Let's talk about the sharing economy. And I guess the first question is what is it? But then also when people talk about it, it's often in the sense that this is something radically new, that the sharing economy is this revolutionary change in the way that we interact with other people or the way that we buy and sell goods. And so on top of what is it, is it actually a new thing? Well, it's a relatively new thing that allows us to do something that's very old. So the the term uh, is really used to describe companies that allow people to interact in a peer-to-peer marketplace. But it allows uh, people to do that with goods uh, and services that uh, will be familiar to all listeners. So whether this is Airbnb, which allows people to advertise spare rooms or uh, any other sort of accommodation like houses uh, that can be used by strangers or uh, Uber and Lyft, which both provide ride-sharing services to allow people to take rides. Uh, that that really is uh, the focus of it at the moment. Uh, now, of course, the whole phrase uh, sharing economy is, I think, rightly uh, sometimes uh, – made fun of because, of course, uh, this is done for profit. It's not really sharing. These people aren't sharing cars uh, when they're using Lyft. Someone is providing a ride to someone in exchange for cash. This seems like – it seems new. We talk about this. Uber and, and Airbnb are, are fairly new. But in terms of the internet, especially disrupting existing frameworks, it seems – it's older than that if we if we brought it out. For example, Craigslist, correct? Mm, yeah. Craigslist helped put the newspapers out of business because it took away their classified ads, which was half of what they were running on. So although there are now new ones, maybe the reason we're noticing is because they're challenging more established businesses such as taxi cabs and hotels. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's something that people like to say uh, or people like to mention is that uh, these things have really exploded with uh, the emergence of smartphones. Uh, a lot of them are app-based. Uh, Uber and Lyft are both app-based. There's also TaskRabbit is another one that has an app. What is TaskRabbit? Uh, TaskRabbit is a company that allows people to uh, – they're called Taskers, I believe, who uh, – can do a wide variety of different things. If you need a keg delivered or you need someone to proofread something or someone to help put together your furniture, you can find someone via TaskRabbit who will do that for you. Like tile your bathroom, really anything you can think really, of? Yeah, there's, there's also a company called Thumbtack which does uh, licensed professionals as a way to do it. Uh, but you're right. The, these, these companies are challenging rather uh, powerful industries. Uh, so Craigslist, you're right, did a huge amount of damage to newspaper advertising. Uh, and as anyone who's listening uh, will probably know is uh, taxi cabs and hotels are not happy about uh, these new competitors who are on the market. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean the, these companies, uh, Airbnb and Uber, for instance, are international and they're fighting different fights with different regulations all around the world. I often say that mostly what these companies do and, and I'm going to include Craigslist and, and even eBay in this mm-hmm. going back to the dark early days of the net. Uh, mostly they just diminish transaction costs. That they, they connect people who otherwise wouldn't be connected and it's kind of uh, – it's kind of this reorganization principle that economists talk about. In our, in our previous episode uh, we did with Adam Gurr, we talked about how you can – how the 
assumptions about perfect knowledge and and all the transactions mean that, that you would create a utopia if all the transactions had occurred. And this is similar. There's someone out there with something in their basement that I want to buy for a price that I'm willing to pay and the only thing that's keeping that from happening is that I can't find them. Mm-hmm. And so you can just reorganize the world and make connections and make everyone happier, find rides, find places to stay. It was just the problem not finding those people before. Yes, and it's also the case uh, not only do people have uh, goods that they perhaps don't want uh, that other people might want, but they also have skills and they also have uh, spare not, – not just stuff but spare space. Uh, and there's the, 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 the interesting thing about this is obviously given the, the amount of industries this is disrupting, including cuisine, you can have someone who's a very good uh, – well, a policy analyst or someone who's a very good bus driver or someone who's a very good uh, software engineer but also happens to be a good cook and can uh, make a little money on the side or someone who is a good driver and can do that on the side. It certainly does diminish transaction costs. I look forward to telling uh, my children that once upon a time, dad had to stand on street corners and wave his hand around like a lunatic in order to <laughs> catch rides. Uh, this is uh, – so yeah, it's, it's certainly doing that for sure. Let me ask you about one of the big objections that gets raised against these things, particularly Uber and Airbnb and that's the skirting regulations issue mm-hmm. because regulations – I mean we all know that regulations are often – put into effect for all sorts of bad reasons. But the the explicit reason for them and, and the reason that a lot of people support regulations in some shape or another is because they're meant to protect the consumer. You know, you, you regulate the taxi industry so that then we know that these cabs are safe, the drivers have been checked out, the cars are okay, they're legitimate business people, whatever. You regulate hotels for similar reasons. And so if if Airbnb or Uber can start up and offer rides or offer rooms without having to go through these regulatory hoops, aren't they dangerous? I mean, isn't isn't that kind of the whole purpose of regulation has been undermined and we're all, you know, not safe anymore? Well, they're certainly undermining existing regulation, uh, but it's not the case that we are less safe because of these new companies. Uh, the the emergence of the sharing economy has highlighted how badly lawmakers and regulators can keep up with technological changes. Now, in the 70s or you know, before the rise of the internet, you could perhaps make the argument that, look, or taxi companies could perhaps make the argument that, well, we really should have um, very strict background checks and you really shouldn't uh, allow competitors because if tourists arrive in our town and just get into any car, who knows who that is going to be? Uh, and that argument might have made sense uh, decades ago, but it is the case that Uber and Lyft do uh, background checks. Uh, and it is also the case, and this is something that I think a lot of people do like about the sharing economy, uh, specifically when it comes to Uber and Lyft, that it encourages good behavior on providers and consumers because of rating systems. So if you have a bad Lyft ride and you give them zero stars, that is known to the company. And if you are a belligerent uh, passenger, that is also reflected. Can you ex- explain that a bit more because I know you have deeper knowledge about how – uh, the rating system works with the Uber. You let's go through the process. Of, right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, you want to become an Uber X driver. So let's go. There's Uber Black Car, which is mm-hmm. which are licensed commercial drivers, kind of like Lincoln Town Cars, limousine chauffeur right. yeah. type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the Uber X is just people using their own cars. So let's say you want to become an Uber X driver. What do you do? 
Uh, well, it's a comparatively uh, easy process compared to becoming a taxi driver. You go onto the website, you submit uh, certain uh, pieces of information that allow uh, Uber to carry out background checks that are done by a third party, uh, which is called Hireese. It's one of these. Uh, Lyft uses a company called Sterling, uh, Sterling Background, uh, and they check available court court records, county records, uh, and other uh, databases in order to make sure that you're not a dangerous person. Uh, they check your driving history, uh, and then you know some states require inspections of of cars on a periodic basis. If you own one of those states, Uber might. Uh, ask for records on that and uh, then they will give you the phone and your uh, – Do they free- give you a phone or they just give you an app for your phone? Uh, Uber gives you the phone uh, for UberX drivers. Now uh, – and then once you're in your car and you turn the app on, uh, if someone near you wants a ride, you will get a notification. You have a certain amount of time to accept or decline the ride and you pick up your uh, passenger. Now, when, once that is done, uh, the passenger rates you as the driver, and then you get a chance to rate the passenger. Now, of course, uh, drivers are under a bit more scrutiny. Passengers can survive with uh, poor ratings. Uh, it's, it's up to the driver. But uh, drivers with poor ratings do not last very long on the platforms. What is Uber's policy on, the, on how, what, how low can your rating go? What your first rating, can't, you, you can't get below a 4.2. I, I, was, I was told once uh, by a Lyft driver, I believe it was, that if you don't secure a, at least a four rating on your first ride, you get dropped. And I think uh, that that was from a Lyft driver. Uh, and then I, I've heard from people who drive UberX that they have to maintain monthly averages of I think 4.6 or 4.8, quite high rating. And you also mentioned that there's a – you can't have a car older than – 2004? 2004, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the cars have to be relatively new, which is a, uh, a good way to ensure uh, you know, that, that the vehicles are probably in pretty good order. And that's better than taxi cabs because certainly they're older than 2004 taxi cabs. Uh, that's only true. Yeah. Right. So the service is giving us as people who want to get a ride somewhere newer cars with people who have been checked out. The, the prices are – often lower than mm-hmm. the cab fare would be. There's a high level of convenience because you don't have to stand out there on the side of the road waving your arms. So this is all pretty good and as someone who's ridden an Uber, it, it is it is a quite nice experience. So what has this done to the taxi companies? Because I know I haven't taken a cab except from the airport where right. Uber's not allowed to pick me up since I started using Uber. No, it has had a uh, pretty devastating effect. Uh, there's been data uh, supplied by people in the taxi industry from San Francisco that's shown a dramatic decline uh, since uh, 2012. Uh, I, I, I wrote uh, quite recently about uh, – there was there was a, a, Washington, a manager of a Washington cab company who said that they're seeing uh, – large decreases in the amount of rides. And this this shouldn't come as a surprise to people who I think have you know used the service or uh, and have compared that to trying to get taxi rides. It was uh, a pretty shocking number that came out of San Francisco, right? Oh yeah, it was um, I mean in the tens, I think it might have been a forty percent to sixty percent decline. Uh, it's been in the number of taxi trips taken. Now uh, Taxi companies have reacted very predictably to this. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise. These uh, market incumbents have you know, enjoyed relative success before uh, Uber and Lyft came along as well as uh, Sidecar and other companies. Now, uh, and now the, the, their options are, uh, as, as 
market players is is adapt or die, right? These are the two options. Uh, or, was, or prohibit. Or I mean, prohibit. Well, well adapt. One, right? So uh, exactly. Good point. Uh, so there, there was a, a an app designed called Halo that allowed you to actually hail taxis. Uh, they left North America, uh, which you know should send signals to people in the taxi industry. Uh, they, they and you know they they are suffering uh, all across the country now. Uh, to Trevor's point, of course, they've um, been working on uh, putting up regulatory barriers um, all across the country and uh, around the world. The arguments made by people in the taxi industry is that these sort of companies should be regulated as if they're taxi cabs, which comes with a whole range of uh, different regulations depending on uh, the country. But I think what Uber and Lyft's argument that I think does hold up is that they are not transportation uh, – sorry, they are not uh, – Cab companies, they're technology companies. They're providing a technology that allows someone who's looking for a ride to find a driver. They are not providing a taxi service as most people understand it. But even for us fans of creative destruction and free and open competition, wouldn't it be the case that given that the taxi companies are already heavily regulated and these are the regulations they're trying to extend to Uber, that their ability to compete is effectively hamstrung to some degree by – the fact that they're regulated, so Uber can do things that they can't do. So even if they wanted to compete, they're going to have a harder time of it. Yeah, I actually do have quite a bit of sympathy with uh, taxi drivers who make this complaint, which is, you know, me and my colleagues and uh, the company uh, have invested a lot of time and often time money into complying with these regulations and getting uh, all the relevant licenses sorted out. Uh, and now someone comes along that is uh, competing with you and they don't have these costs. I understand that that is a frustration, uh, especially given that uh, you're going to be getting less profit uh, from it. But I think the response to that, if you're a policymaker, should be to uh, deregulate the taxi industry, not try to regulate this new disruptive competitor as something it is not, which is you know, we shouldn't be regulating technology companies as if they're taxi companies and we shouldn't be regulating uh, tech, uh, tech technology companies as if they're hotels. You know, this is not the right way to do policy. I agree. I have some sympathy with them, but I also have little in the sense that some of the things that they could have done. I mean, they, they definitely have restraints, hoops that they have to jump through that Uber doesn't. But some of the things in here in DC that they could have done uh, is a uh, have an app. Have the, the app should have happened years ago, but they were so immune from competition that they didn't do it. And then second, uh, for a long time, DC cabs didn't even take credit cards. It was almost impossible to get one to take credit cards. This meant that. I didn't take cabs essentially at all before Uber. Mm -hmm. So this brings up a different point, which is that sometimes they're taking business and this applies to Airbnb I think even more. Sometimes they're taking business from existing players but sometimes they're actually – the people who are doing this are, are people who wouldn't have been using cabs or been using hotels in that sense. I, I, I use Uber way more than I've ever used cabs and I use it because it's Uber and, and all the conveniences that cabs didn't offer me. So it's not taking my business from cabs. It's making me take more rides. Yeah, I, I am in the, the same boat. I, I very rarely took uh, taxis before uh, Uber came along. And this is this is something I think taxi companies uh, need to realize is is you know, building on Trevor's point. If if there was such a thing as a, uh, a free app that you could uh, hail taxis with – uh, you would hope that it would succeed, but as I pointed out earlier, you know, Halo failed, uh, and I, you know, the people at Halo cited the fierce competition between Lyft and Uber as their 
the reason for exit from North America. They just couldn't. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, someone who works in, in the taxi industry won't come up with a great idea or a great app, but it's um, I'm left wanting to see what that is. And once that does appear, I think you know. It won't come as a surprise given uh, this is Cato, but I'm a big fan of ha- your customers having lots of choices uh, and the more choices, the better. But I think the market should decide which ones survive and which ones die. Let me ask a question about another complaint that got leveled against Uber, not from taxi companies but from customers and especially early on in Uber's days and one that goes to economic theory, which is a topic that we talk about a lot here on Free Thoughts and that's this surge pricing. Yeah. Can you – Tell us what that is. So surge pricing is something that is done by uh, Uber. Uh, Lyft have a very similar policy which is that at times of high demand, uh, the prices go up uh, and it can go up two times, uh, you know, double or it can be up to nine, eleven times. So if it starts time. pouring New Year's Eve, it pouring New Year's Eve, Eve uh, Halloween, uh, predictable busy times and this is because uh, – as, as was mentioned, these are not professional drivers. These are people in their spare time providing rides. And a lot of people during New Year's or Halloween, they have, OK, do I want to go out and give rides or do I want to join in the festivities? And a good way to incentivize drivers to get out is to uh, provide means by which they can get more profit. Now, this has been criticized by people because a lot of people have gone out partying and woken up and realized that they've spent you know literally hundreds of dollars. Uh, to get home now, uh, this is this is a great example of you know supply and demand working itself out. But I think it's worth uh, listeners who are not familiar with the app to realize that when surge pricing is in effect, uh, Uber makes you punch in the amount of the surge, and uh, there is a fair estimate button on the app. Uh, so I, I I have you know sometimes I remember a few Saturday nights I've um, thought about getting an Uber but then I see that surge pricing is in effect and I consider well I could get the metro I could wait you know this is um and that's a good thing uh, I think if you have surge pricing in effect the people who are getting rides are people who want the rides the most and uh, I think that's something that uh, taxi companies if they did come up with a good app would. Uh, should probably consider implementing. Right. That was what I mean. That seems so interesting to me about the uproar about mm, surge mm. pricing and, and the kind of moral condemnation of surge pricing that we saw. Right, it's a just lot of people is because it's like gouging is because it's. I mean, surge pricing is like textbook basic economics. Right, of course, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. like there's a lot of people want this service, and so the price for it goes up, which then attracts more people to provide the service, which then brings the price back. Like this is exactly how economics says things work and how you create an efficient marketplace. Mm. But and it happens all the time all around us, but but the problem that Uber ran into is they made it transparent. They made it obvious. They were like, here's what's at we are showing you the basic economics behind the system. And when people could actually see it, they just freaked out. Well, when we look at the we analyze it even deeper. Let's say you're in New York uh, before Uber and Lyft and everything, and it's New Year's Eve, so you decided to go to watch the ball drop. And interestingly enough, if, if I remember uh, stat correctly, that there there has not been a new New York taxi cab medallion issued since the 30s. I think there's there are many New York cabs right now as there were in the 30s. Mm-hmm. This, and these cab medallions are owned by very large corporations because the last one time that one went on sale on the market, this is a permission to run a cab in New York City. It sold for nearly a million dollars. And the, so the supply has an increase. So, so when you – on the New Year's Eve and you're trying to hail a cab, it's going to take you 
an hour. Oh, ages, ages. Which means you can't get and, a cab no matter how yeah. much you'd be willing to And that's to the new price, it. right? The, now the new price is waiting. It's just, it's, this is now basic economic analysis. But it's not as transparent. It's just like how much would you pay to not wait an hour? And you'd be like, well, I'd pay four times more. And then the But the added bonus that Uber has that t- New York taxi cabs don't is that they can increase the supply by giving more rewards, as you mm-hmm. said, to the drivers who are willing to provide it. Yeah, I, I think the, the medallion system in, in New York is a great example of how silly existing regulations are. You, you know, in, in a city that has seen population growth since the 30s, a little, <laughs> they, they, a little bit, then you would think that uh, the need for taxis uh, would also increase with an increase in population. Uh, but uh, you know, the, these, these medallions, which are essentially uh, you, you buy permission to run a taxi is essentially what it is. And, and you're buying permission from the state. Uh, yes, from the – and you bid and you know, winners get the, the right to uh, run taxis. The, the, these things have – I think I, I read correctly. These have been better investments than the stock market. Uh, they explode in value but you know it, it is absolutely the case that they restrict the number of people that can supply a popular service and Uber uh, subverts this uh, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that it's popular given in those situations where uh, there is a big uh, demand for the service. But isn't the argument that if we were to allow the supply of taxis to increase or the supply of Uber which is going to drive down fares because there's going to be more competition for fares – that we're going to make it impossible for these drivers to earn a living. I don't think the the, the race to the bottom argument is uh, something to that we should necessarily overlook. But I think um, the, the the question you asked uh, highlights something I think is interesting. Is I think uh, that. What the sharing economy highlights is that we're just going to view getting services in a very different sort of way. So you say, well, maybe taxi drivers won't be able to make a living. Now, number one, I'm not sure if that's true. But number two, that might be because if it is true, uh, that because the idea of that being full-time professional taxi drivers might eventually become a thing of the past and that uh, companies like Sidecar and Lyft and Uber just come to dominate uh, the industry, which is 100 percent part-time people or 100 uh, percent – sorry, not 100 percent, but but that this sort of service is run by people who use apps, whether they're Black Car or UberX, Lyft, Sidecar, those sort of things. I've had some very interesting Uber drivers who were – one was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. Another one was a was a policy analyst at a think tank here in town and and this is – they just do this on the side. And they think it's fun and they like to talk to people. And So yes, maybe that's the new equilibrium and the – the idea of a career as a taxi driver is itself a state-enforced. Yeah, and this is uh, something that you can also see as potentially being a problem with uh, Airbnb and hotels because people might say, well, won't hotels go out of business? And maybe in uh, 50, 60 years after I tell my children, well, you know, dad one day, you know, once upon a time had to wave his hand around, I might be saying, well, once upon a time there were these giant buildings that had rooms and you, know, you would walk in and you'd be given one. But anyone who's been to a city looks out of a hotel room and sees – Thousands of houses that probably have spare bedrooms or probably have maybe some of the whole houses themselves are spare and Airbnb provides a great way of those spare bedrooms or spare uh, pieces of property to be used. Uh, so it might just be the case that uh, what we're seeing at the moment is uh, a sign of pretty significant things to come. It could really uh, change the way that people feel and do uh, searching for services. This is the change that people seem to fear when there's arguments. So there's, there's the arguments about whether Uber is effective or safe or whatever that you hear often from taxicab companies and sympathetic people on that side. But there's also 
this this argument about the kind of shift in the economy that the sharing economy represents that is the same argument that goes back to like the decline in good paying union jobs that that we're shifting are we shifting from an economy where people had high quality high paying employment for life and the security that came with it to an economy where we're all kind of trading ad hoc goods and services and our income is basically a handful of low paying hobbies and hoping uh, well, I, I, I think uh, anyone who works in uh, policy should uh, be very wary of making good predictions. <laughs> uh, but I do think that uh, what w it should not come as a surprise if in the future an increasing number of people uh, make money doing a wide variety of different things. Uh, this this micro-entrepreneurship, it's been called, uh, might become increasingly common. Uh, but if it's, if it's not going to be the way that people uh, – get most of their money, it, it's probably going to remain a way that people just make a little bit of extra cash, whether it's being an UberX driver or being a task rabbit or uh, you know, using uh, a spare bedroom on Airbnb. I think that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Well, actually, we mentioned Airbnb a couple of times and, uh, and maybe we should talk about that process too so mm -hmm. we can fill in the blanks. Uh, what is it and then if you want to become an Airbnb host or even guest, what do you do uh, to, to go through that process? Well, Airbnb is a company that allows people to uh, advertise spare properties or spare rooms for people who are traveling. So uh, now for users, this is comparatively easy. You go to Airbnb.com and you create an account and then like Travelocity or other travel sites, you search. You put in you know, where you're staying for how long and how much you'd like to pay uh, and then you're given a selection of uh, options to choose from. And uh, then they it have works. Ratings, and they have ratings as uh, exactly. Uh, now to become a host, uh, you have to, uh, you know, provide a bit more information and also uh, information that allows Airbnb to verify that you are who you say you are, and uh, th those sort of things. Now. Uh, th these people are obviously competing directly with hotels, which has got hotels very angry. Uh, there's a whole range of regulations that uh, dictate how much taxes hotels uh, have to pay and also uh, access for people with disabilities, these sorts of things. Uh, now, Airbnb says uh, on its site that everyone has to obey local laws. Uh, but I think Airbnb could be an interesting example of um, regulators really getting into the business of regulating people's houses because it's worth keeping in mind that uh, while it is worth praising uh, the existence of new competitors, the, the sharing economy has introduced a very strange regulatory gray area. There used to be a very clear distinction between private cars and taxis and there used to be a very clear distinction between private homes and hotels. But Uber, Lyft, Airbnb have sort of introduced a, a, a blurry gray area that regulators are struggling to deal with. And I think moving forward, people should be uh, wary of what sort of regulations uh, lawmakers are going to come up with. And Airbnb, uh, the other interesting thing about Airbnb is that it's – we'd mentioned how I take Ubers at a rate that I didn't take taxis, so I'm not exactly taking business from the taxis. But Airbnb has numbers that they produced internally that have that being incredibly stark, that the people who use Airbnb are not – Hotel users. I mean, not many of them are not hotel users who decide not to use a hotel. It's not the guy who wants. It's not the case that the businessman who wants to go stay in Times Square in a four hundred dollar night hotel, if given the option to sleep on someone's couch, will be like, oh well, I'll stay on someone's couch. It's, it's providing in New York particularly. It's providing people 
with who wouldn't even be able to go to New York because hotels are so expensive with the ability to actually go to New York and stay and pay their tourism dollar. It's a different type of traveler. It's like someone who stays in hostels versus someone who stays in hotels. Very different type of traveler. Right. And, and as opposed to the businessman who flies uh, to New York or Chicago for a two-day business trip or something, people at Airbnb are quite likely to go to local bookstores or eat at local restaurants or to you know inject uh, money into local economy. I think there's a lot of interesting work that could certainly be done on, on that aspect. Aspect of the sharing economy, uh, and you know that that's something people should uh, should welcome. Uh, speaking of New York, it's interesting that uh, close to three quarters of Airbnb listings in New York City were declared illegal by the Attorney General there. Uh, now. Uh, what what is interesting about that is that the attorney general was saying that these people are not complying with uh, hotel regulations uh, and all these other sorts of uh, you know laws that are in place. But what is particularly of note is that Airbnb does kick people off its platform that they do not feel uh, exhibit the Airbnb ethos and their culture. They don't like uh, a lot of people just running, uh, you know, apartment buildings like the hotels and, you know, doing all this sort of stuff. They like uh, hosts to be part of the experience. They like it being personal. Uh, and that that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Uh, people, when, when consumers are looking for something, uh, I think especially Airbnb consumers uh, really enjoy the fact that they're going to be in a house in a city they're looking forward to exploring. And that's very different to a hotel. How are how are hosts protected in all this? Because I'm, you, know, you listen to this and you're like, well, so the idea is I sign up on this web page and then strangers come and live in my home, um, and and that seems. I mean, it's one thing with the the Uber where it's like it's my car that I bought. You know, if it has to be a late model, I may have bought it just to be an Uber driver, and I'm in it and I'm the one driving around. But it seems like quite another to just turn over the keys to my house to someone I've never met. Uh, yeah, so there are a number of things to to say about this. The first is that Airbnb does provide coverage for you know, property damage and these sorts of things. There's, I think it's a um, it's, it's quite a high value guarantee. Uh, the second thing to say about it is, uh, and this goes back to what we mentioned at the very beginning, is that this isn't uh, something that's actually uh, that old a concept for strangers. You to, mean people staying in your house? Well, no, people it's not staying that old in, concept, no, right, exactly. <laughs> so um, you know, and, and people with roommates will understand this. People say, "Oh, by the way, a friend of mine is staying. Crash on the couch, or do you mind if my my parents show up? They're in town for the weekend, or something like that." That is, yeah, but you know, my, my roommates' friends or my roommate's parents could trash the place and host a rager. Uh, this is a possibility. Uh, but the fact that Airbnb uh, provides some sort of guarantee should uh, reassure hosts, as should the fact that people who use Airbnb to trash a house have a very low incentive to do so because they will almost certainly not be allowed back <laughs> onto the platform. And number two, the p- people investigating that will know exactly who you are and we'll be able to investigate the crime if you uh, engage in property damage. If, if I wanted to uh, rent out my house for a week uh, to someone on Airbnb and I gave them the keys and I came back and the place was trashed, well, I know who did it. And you know, I, I, and they, they are going to incur the costs. So, dovetailing that slightly, I also want to mention that uh, the safety complaints of UberX and Lyft drivers has been raised. Uh, and I think what, what's worth mentioning is that uh, taxi drivers – do have a very dangerous job. Uh, they, they are picking up strangers and uh, they, they carry cash, which makes them you know, high you know, targets for robberies and violent assaults and things like that. And the, the homicide rate for taxi drivers is way, way higher than the average US worker. Uh, now, 
UberX and Lyft provide um, great ways to make that experience safer for drivers, which is the there's no cash involved, which the, these payments are made automatically. So uh, you wouldn't get into a Lyft or an Uber car uh, in order to steal cash. And also uh, the, it, it's safer because you know who the passenger is. I mean if you, if you wanted to commit a crime in an Uber or Lyft car, you would have to want to be caught it seems to me because uh, there's – you have an account. People know uh, who you are and where you were. Uh, so I think that makes it safer, not just for passengers, but also for drivers. So if it's safer for drivers and the amount that they earn is pretty good and they can work whenever they feel like it, then why do we see taxi drivers protesting Uber? I mean, just recently, taxi drivers blocked off San Francisco Airport. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. So I, I can understand why the taxi companies would be up in arms about Uber, but. Why the drivers? Why wouldn't they just switch over? Well, uh, some of I think, as uh, Trevor perhaps mentioned earlier, is that uh, some of them do. I think I, I don't think uh, that there's been hard numbers on what percentage of taxi drivers do eventually slip because they certainly, as you point out, they have transferable skills that would. But uh, yeah, there, there's a whole range of uh, reasons why they might not do this. I think something uh, that probably. Uh, really is uh, an important reason for a lot of these people is is something that isn't considered very often is that taxi drivers are oftentimes very proud of the fact that they're taxi drivers and that they've invested a lot of time into it. And a this lot is of, especially true in London. It is very especially true in <laughs> London. Uh, now, and, and, and the, the London example is interesting because they've also invested a lot of uh, time and money in order to gain the privilege of being a taxi driver. And if they just thought, well, I'll quit and become a Uber or Lyft driver, it, you know, to them, it, they, they've, to, they might consider it a waste of time and money uh, that they spent in order to become a taxi driver. Uh, and it's also if you want to be an UberX driver, well, you've got to have your own vehicle. So uh, these taxi drivers might not have a vehicle that would be up to spec for Uber or Lyft and they'd have to invest in getting a new vehicle. Uh, so those are a few of the reasons why it might not happen. Some of the uh, issues that we've seen, I know you've told me some stories about because uh, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, all of these are inevitably going to find themselves with problems of some sort uh, that might be publicized and of course as supporters of this economy have to say, well, no one ever said that there wouldn't be problems. We're going to have to figure it out. Uh, there will be robberies. There will be violence, whatever. But you mentioned – behavior by executives. Or that, yes. <laughs> and, but you've mentioned a couple of times on the, a case where someone hit a person in a crosswalk and the question of whether or not they were at that time an Uber driver. These are interesting stories that we're still trying to work out. Yeah. So the, the story that Trevor is referencing happened in San Francisco when an UberX driver hit and uh, unfortunately killed a, a young girl. Uh, now, uh, what's interesting about the case is that he didn't have a passenger in the car at the time, but the Uber app was on. So – He's in a phase where he's looking for passengers, uh, but he doesn't have one in it. And of course, Uber is saying, or did say, sorry, at the time, well, we're not liable. You know, this isn't our car. And, and Uber he, does have a have a liability of a, a million or right, so, right? But that so that but that kicks in uh, when the passenger's in the car, right? That that uh, million dollar liability insurance. Now, for the phase that this driver was in, where the the kid got hit. Uh, Uber provides coverage uh, that uh, kicks in if a personal uh, auto insurer declines a claim. It's a sort of umbrella coverage that comes down uh, to help you out. Uh, now, in Colorado and California uh, that have passed rideshare legislation, they've uh, 
mandated that that coverage be primary. So it's not there just to kick in if you have an insurance claim declined. It's that it's supposed to be there first. But you're right, and this is what I mentioned earlier about the the gray area. It's it's very awkward uh, situation where where you have someone in a uh, yeah, a private vehicle just with a phone on looking for passengers. Uh, it is an interesting regulatory area that's going to be explored, I bet you, in the coming years. For the bigger picture question, um, which I think all this sort of leads to uh, and, and ties in with other episodes we've done uh, on Free Thoughts about why libertarians like this so much, uh, why we should like this so much and what it, what it adds to some basic questions we have about – for example, regulation. So some of our episodes with Peter Van Doren, we talk about when maybe regulation or public utility regulation is needed because there's not enough competition, right? Yes. Yeah. And so you might need to guarantee, as you mentioned, like in the 70s, you might need to guarantee taxis uh, because the tourists would come and get into any car and have a horrible experience. But different, the competitive element helps solve these other problems, right? So you can try and guarantee safety by by regulation. Or you can try and guarantee safety by radical competition that's open with rating systems and all these things like that. And then the whole world starts to look different in this interesting way, right? Mm. Hotels, one of the reasons hotels exist and hotel chains exist is so people can look at the brand and know what they're getting. And now you don't need that anymore. Now you can look at a rating on Airbnb, right? Uh, and one of the reasons that name brand food, McDonald's exists, so people driving across America could look at the brand and know what they're getting. And now we have Yelp. So that's getting so now you have radical competition that's maybe solving some of the problems that regulation was supposed to solve in this interesting way. Yeah, and I think that is the reason why free market advocates are fans of of this. Uh, the, the, it's popular to amongst libertarians uh, and, and a lot of people who aren't libertarians. But I think for, for libertarians, it's a very, very interesting issue because it highlights uh, a lot of public choice problems about the fact that incumbent industries can make very powerful friends if they invest a little bit of time and money into making the right uh, you know, friends with regulators. But it also highlights the value of competition and how when uh, – someone comes onto the scene that incumbents were expecting, it can really light a, uh, a flame under their feet to get them to innovate and to change their behavior. Uh, but I, be I, I, I think it, we libertarians might be singing a different tune in, in, a, in five, ten years when the sharing economy is much more firmly established because companies that are facing a lot of political problems now and are dealing with regulations uh, are probably going to behave exactly the same as uh, most uh, private uh, businesses do once they become established players. Someone is alive now, maybe they're in high school at the moment, who has an idea that's better than Uber or has an idea that's better than Airbnb and they're going to come up with this idea and try and make money off it, at which point we should expect Airbnb and Uber to behave uh, as <laughs> sort of like hotels and taxi industries. They are going to want to protect uh, their, their share of the market. So while at the moment they are being portrayed uh, for better or worse as you know, libertarian heroes, uh, we should be uh, wary of the fact that that might change potentially. Let's talk a bit more about the future. I'm curious, looking forward, and I know you earlier didn't want to make concrete predictions, but I'm going to ask you to okay. make predictions. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you see other areas of the economy, other goods and services that seem ripe for the sharing economy, that that, that high school kid with his great idea might be able to latch on to? 
Oh, no. Well, to all the high school kids listening, I think uh, a few areas I think you should look at. I think uh, medicine is an area where something like this could really become popular. People uh, interacting directly with doctors or for uh, medicine to become increasingly decentralized. Uh, education is another area that I think uh, technology will disrupt uh, education in a very, very big way. Didn't Google now, just launch a little marketplace where you could – I think I received an email about this. They they just launched a, a marketplace where you could set yourself up as an expert in something and then offer basically online tutoring hmm. through a directory. No, I, I well, I want to be on that email list now. now <laughs> that I know. But uh, this uh, there's something uh, similar. Uh, people listening might have heard of uh, Khan Academy, which started with someone who started making online videos. I think for his nieces and nephews to help them study for the SAT exam, and they sort of. Uh, blew up, and uh, now, now you know, Khan Academy is used um, all over the world. I believe certainly in the United States, and it's where you know teachers who are good at that job can make videos and share them, and they can be found by anyone with uh, internet access. Uh, yeah, and I, I certainly think in uh, in the coming years, uh, teachers are going to be complaining about this because once you're a very talented maths teacher, and you say, "Look, I'm just going to charge two dollars a day per pupil." Uh, in order to teach calculus or something, and you get millions of children watching your videos, that's going to, you know, could become increasingly profitable. This seems like it represents an interesting shift in the way that we go about judging expertise or or predicting expertise from someone who we haven't met yet. Because in the old style economy, it was the the company that the person worked for, the the institution that they worked for, represented expertise. So you would go. You know, the fact that this person was in this yellow cab that was from some cab company meant that they had been vetted by the cab company and were an expert in getting you from where you are to where you want to go or the the hotel is – has a certain level of expertise in providing somewhere to stay or the teacher, you, you go to a university and you know that people who work at a university are experts in their field. But this gets us away from that. This, now you're you're interacting with people on an individual basis, and there's these reputation scores that we may have. But it does. I mean, you, you mentioned brands, but it seems to go against that model of judging quality. Well, look in 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 the sharing economy, your reputation is currency, and this and I, there was a, a site launched recently. I, I'm frustrated; I forget the exact name, but it's a way for you to sort of like a credit score, get your different ratings from different sharing economy uh, companies into one score. There used so to that, be something like that in the. Early two thousands, that was kind of one of the hip things coming well, eBay out of the startup was the, scene. Well, eBay really pioneered eBay gave the you reputation. A, a reputation, but I remember a handful of companies popped up that were kind of freestanding reputation scores. So there's one. It's called like RepLeaf hmm. or RapLeaf, something like that. And the idea was you would create an account, and then friends would vouch for you, which contributed reputation, and other people could rate you, which contributed reputation, and then you were supposed to have a score or Cory Doctorow, the technology writer and futurist and science fiction writer, had a, a novel I think called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom that was based around this kind of reputation economy where everyone, if I looked at you, my virtual reality glasses or something would show some numeric score <laughs> floating over your head that was like, here's Matt's reputation. Yeah, uh, that that I well, as we mentioned uh, earlier, I, this is going to become, I think, uh, a much larger section of the 
economy. This is where an increasing number of industries are going to start working. And with that will, I'm sure, come uh, ways for people to uh, get, get all of their different scores clumped together, which might mean, well, someone's you know, a very nice Airbnb host, but they're actually a bit of an obnoxious passenger in an Uber car. Like that, that is something that um, would be really interesting to see. Uh, and you know, the effects that that could have on employment, whether people are going to check these things. At the moment, it's not unheard of for employees to check Facebook and Twitter to see this uh, a job applicant. So maybe, yeah, maybe one day we'll be uh, checking up people's sharing economy scores. And I should add, just as a plug for other things that we do at libertarianism.org, another instance of the sharing economy was our other podcast, which I assume all of our listeners are already listening to, called Excursions, which is a series of audio essays from the author George H. Smith on the history of libertarian thought. But when we wanted to turn those essays into a podcast, we went to a site called Audible Exchange, which is a directory of narrators who are all freelancers and have a portfolio up there and ratings. And we found a really terrific narrator named James Foster who now narrates these things for us. The this is part of the bigger, I think, bigger story here. Um, how disruptive this actually is, and that's what I'm, I sort of I think is like the final kind of note to this is that. The reason I love the sharing economy so much, uh, not only because it provides me with really cool things that I've done, I did Airbnb in Brussels, I do Uber all the time. It's great, but it it does a few things that are really helpful to libertarians. One, um, it shows the seams of the state to people in a, thick, a way that they hadn't much thought about it, in a way that we think about it all the time here, especially at Cato. But I think before Uber, uh, a lot of people probably never knew there was a taxi cab cartel enforced by the state that was providing them with really poor service. And then Uber comes along and, and gives them all this service and then people say, well, this taxis, they just – they're really – they suck. They're really horrible. And you start to see this all over the place of things that the state was supposed to be doing for you but actually making your life worse. So you get the secondary element of, of the technology moving faster than the state and people start being like, this state thing is so slow and boring and, and outdated and why can't I call a taxi cab on my phone? Why can't I pay my taxes on my phone? All this thing and it, it starts breaking through the seams in this exciting way. No, this this reminds me of uh, something that uh, Radley Balco, who used to be at Cato, used to be at Reason Magazine. Uh, he he said libertarianism is something that happens to you, and I feel and like he, that, in that context, he was talking about cops. He was talking. House. He was talking <laughs> yeah. about you know the, when cops literally do kick in the door yeah. and uh, shoot your dog and all this other stuff. But I think that that idea that uh, this this the rise of the sharing economy is getting people aware of the cumbersome nature of regulations is I think a good thing because once people realize that all Uber X is is someone giving you a ride and then you're told this is illegal because a group of people who don't want competition have a certain degree of influence and there are these outdated pieces of legislation, that is what is going to start frustrating people and especially when it comes to things like uh, you know, accommodation and cuisine and potentially health. Yes, and the education. underground supper clubs. The right? underground we didn't mention clubs. that. This is people cooking in their basement uh, yeah, for yeah. Uh, people they found online. I'll, I'll throw a dinner party. You throw in 10 bucks. These are illegal. Yeah. They're called illegal underground supper clubs. Except they're often run by 
top chefs. Yeah, they can right? be too. Yeah. Well, I I've mentioned this to Trevor before, uh, but there's a there's a chef in in Britain called Jamie Oliver, and when I was living in Britain, I saw a Channel Four documentary. I think it was Channel Four. Apologies to the BBC, <laughs> uh, but they uh, but he traveled to America to do a show about uh, a documentary series about American cuisine, and there's one part where uh, he's in New York and. Uh, they, he, he visits an underground Peruvian restaurant and the camera is shot below the hips of uh, the people running this thing uh, because you know they are breaking the law or could get in trouble for regulations. And that is something I, I hope that people watching that thought – And their so, faces were blurred out, right? I'm not sure, yeah, well, their faces certainly weren't seen and I think that that is a moment where people should think this is someone cooking food that they have bought in their home – for people who want to be there and they feel like they are in trouble. Now, that, that is uh, something that, – that sort of feeling and those sort of stories are really going to be highlighted the more the sharing economy expands and I think that's only a good thing. And I also think that the, the second thing that libertarians need to be happy about with this is that it shows that competition works. In, in a very in, a, in the way that we've always in a way that people have maybe forgotten, and they ask these questions of, oh well, how could you have schools and make sure that they were good if you didn't have public schools? Because oftentimes the biggest barrier to liberty is like a, merely a lack of imagination that you cannot think of another way it could be done. And then entrepreneurs come along, create this way of doing it, and create this radical competition with rating systems, and and not it can make things cheaper, it can make things better, obviously more innovative, and also safer. Mm-hmm. Than, than all the things that the regulations were supposed to be there for in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's also making us uh, more social. And it's, I, I like the fact that as you know, UberX drivers have interesting stories, Lyft drivers have interesting stories. I like that when I travel to cities, I don't have to sit in the same sterile hotel rooms. I get to meet locals and I get to, uh, you know, they get local food and all this other stuff. And I think that's only a good thing for people to uh, explore the world in a more direct way while doing something very, very familiar. Thank you for listening to Free Thoughts. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can find us on Twitter at FreeThoughtsPod. That's FreeThoughtsPod. Free Thoughts is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. To learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.